Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 145th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels, animated videos. Today, we are joined by Michael Leibowitz. Before I even begin to introduce our special guest, I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. Go ahead, start adding them to the queue. I'll remind you later as well. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Now, our guest, Michael Leibowitz, is an author, prison reform advocate, and objectivist who spent 25 years in prison before turning his life around and dedicating himself to advocating personal liberty. He is the host of the Rational Egoist YouTube channel and co-author of the book, Down the Rabbit Hole, How the Culture of Corrections encourages crime. That book offers a unique perspective on why corrections more often than not fail to achieve their stated goals. There it is on the screen and we'll put the links in there as well. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we usually like to start with the guest's origin story and sounds like you have one of the most uh, dramatic and unusual ones so far. Tell us your story. How did you end up spending 25 years in prison and how are you able to uh, use that setting to put your life on a better path? Well, I'm always hesitant to talk about, as you call it, my origin story. The reason being is because it's it's not pretty. I didn't have a very good upbringing, and I never want to come off as if I'm using that as an excuse for why I turned out the way that I did. There's plenty of people who have been through far worse than I've been through who excelled in life. I didn't. And for whatever reason, I, I can't ultimately pinpoint it. I just know that as I got older, it was a function of my choices. And if I had to put two things together that would explain why I ended up in prison, I would say, one, I had serious abandonment issues. And those abandonment issues stemmed largely from when I was a kid, my mother overdosed a few times. Uh, She was very neglectful of me. So I was always fearful that I was going to lose my mother. I was always fearful she was going to die. And then when I ended up having girlfriends, I should sort of projected that onto them. And I was very jealous, very possessive, very afraid I was going to lose them. So I attempted to control them. On the flip side of that, growing up, um, my father had a reputation for being somewhat of a tough guy in my neighborhood. Everybody knew him. They People looked up to him and I wanted to be like him. So I had these two things where I wanted to be a tough guy, where I valued violence and I had insecurity issues. So now when you project that, when I was 19, 20 years old, I had a girlfriend and I did, like I said, I tried the controller. Uh, I had a lot of, well, I'm not going to say fights. I assaulted a lot of people um, that were guys that were friends with her, that took an interest in her. We ultimately broke up. She had a new boyfriend. I couldn't handle it. I arranged for three of my friends to break into her house. They beat him up. They stabbed him. And I got 27 years for that. And I had six years for other offenses as well, ranging from assaults to possession of narcotics with intent to sell. 
And that's how I landed in prison. And I'd be happy to answer any other questions about it. Like I said, I just normally don't like to go into too much detail because I never want to come off as if I'm blaming my parents or the neighborhood or anything else. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I think of it, you're 19 years old, 25 years in prison. You look at 21. I'm sorry. I I went to jail when I was 21. 21. Well, still, uh, you know, you, you look at the headlines today and people are in for extremely violent crimes and they just are bounced back out and they go on to commit, uh, you know, other crimes. What was there something different about the legal system back then? Or, you know, it just seems like, did you make more trouble when you were in prison? Or, you know, it just seems like an awfully long time. No, I entered the legal system at a sort of a perfect storm. Connecticut, where I'm from, just was in the midst of its get tough on crime policy. So they had changed the parole requirements from 50% to 85%. They did away with good time and they were given out harsh sentences. On top of that, I was in a court that was specifically, specifically that court was tough on criminals that were in front of them. So all that was sort of the perfect mix for me to get hit with far more time than somebody else in different circumstances would have gotten. And again, I I do think that objectively speaking, like if I look at other people who did the, the same or similar things and what they got, I got too much time. But at the same time, I put myself in that situation. I did horrible things. So, I mean, who am I to complain about it? So, uh, and now that's a very unique part of your story. Uh, And we were talking about this a little bit before, because when I was saying that some of the ways that the Atlas Society tries to distribute its graphic novels and pocket guides, um, we send them to prison libraries. But that is not how you discovered Ayn Rand. So let's talk a little bit about that. When was that? And how was that? It's it's a very interesting story. I I was reading a book called The Triumph of Liberty by Jim Powell, and it was 64 mini biographies of people that advanced the cause of liberty throughout history. And she was one of the biographies. And the story of how Atlas Shrugged came to be written really grabbed my attention. And at the time, I was reading a lot of magazines from the Foundation for Economic Education. In there, they had the address for laissez-faire books. So I wrote to laissez-faire books for a catalog. They sent me the catalog and they had a box set. And in that box set were Ludwig von Mises's Human Action, Atlas Shrugged, The Discovery of Freedom, I think Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Nock and one other book that I'm not really, oh, uh, maybe it was The God of the Machine by Isabel Patterson. So I bought the box set and I read Atlas Shrugged and was just blown away by it. I mean, the, the book just, it offered a complete philosophy of life. A lot of people that I had talked to seemed to think it was just about politics or economics, but of course it's far more than that. Uh, yeah, you know, talking of Isabel Patterson and your podcast earlier, we recently had on the show Timothy Sanford with his new book on Freedom's Furies, which was writing about Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand during the age of, of FDR and the New Deal and all of that. So that would be another person to add to your list. Um, so you went from, that was Atlas Shrugged the first, and then 
what did you go on to read? And in retrospect, what is Atlas Shrugged still your favorite or the nonfiction or the fiction or what surprised you the most? Nonfiction, certainly it's my favorite. Uh, it, it brought the philosophy to life and it brought terms like self-interest or selfishness into my vocabulary, of course, reason and reality as it is and the admiration of heroes and people that achieved in life. So it was great. But then I read The Virtuous Selfishness, which is a nonfiction collection of essays, and that advanced my thinking even further. But I have to say, I think if I had to put it on any one book that really changed the trajectory of my thinking, it would have to be Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, because the epistemology is the foundation. That teaches you how to think, how to reason, and, and how to assess things. So after reading that and then being able to apply it to an abundance of books I was reading or arguments I was hearing, the news, everything, it was just immensely helpful. And from there, I, I mean, I read the objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, my letter peak off, capitalism, then an ideal, and probably everything else or damn near everything else Rand's ever written. And a few by Leonard Peikoff as well and Nathaniel Brandon, you know, the whole, I've run the gamut on my objectivist literature. Now, when you were reading all of this, this was during your time, when did you get out of prison? I just got out of prison four months ago yesterday. Wow. Okay. So we have one question here actually from Facebook. Jackson Monera asks, were you in prison during the COVID lockdowns? If so, what was that like? Yes, I was. Um, I was a very vocal critic of the way the Department of Correction in Connecticut handled COVID. I was in the news. I was in the newspapers. Um, it was horrible. They seemed to not know what they were doing. I mean, there were mandates about wearing masks, but then correctional officers wouldn't wear the masks. There was mandates about social distancing, but then that wasn't followed. They would lock us down for the first time, I think we were locked down five days without being able to exit the cell at all, not even for a shower. They finally let us shower, but that was outside where the showers were cold. And that was in you know late March, early April. I think it was early April. And this sort of thing just continued. I mean, it was just a charade of nonsense. I mean, there was times, for instance, when they told us we could only walk in the hall five at a time and we had to social distance. But while we were waiting to go outside, we were packed in the block like sardines not even a foot from each other, probably, you know, 150 inmates, or when they tested us for the first time, we had to go out, you know, only a couple at a time and had to keep social distance. But while we were waiting, we were packed into a crowded stairwell. And that type of thing just went on and on and on and on and on through the entire thing and is probably still going on to this day. I don't doubt it is. So uh, 21, when you got in, um, what, about how far into that trajectory did you discover Ayn Rand? And, and did you have anybody else there that you could uh, discuss with? Were you able to share the books with anybody? I, I don't know how strict the policies were, if you were able to, uh, at, at some point, you know, communicate more with the outside world. Yes. In 2001, I met Brent McCall, my co-author for Down the Rabbit Hole, and he's actually, I would describe him as the senior author of the book. And he got transferred and then he came back and we ultimately ended up in the same block together in 2003. I had already discovered Rand by then and I started loaning the books to him. 
So we read them together. And through that, we were able to read them together, debate the issues with each other, what you know various things meant, what the implications were. We were both ordering the books and it, that helped tremendously to have somebody to bounce the ideas off of. He was bouncing them off of me. Because, you know, when you're reading something alone, you, you can draw conclusions and whatnot, but it's always nice to get somebody else's vantage point, what they think, because they may be able to point out errors that you're unaware of. Interesting. Um, well, we're going to dive into the book in a little bit, but uh, we're getting a couple of more questions that are coming in uh, from Twitter. And I want to encourage all of you who are watching on all the different platforms, go ahead and type those in. Um Twitter, Mark's Alexopoulos asks, what is the key distinction between state prison and private prisons, which is better? I've never been in a private prison. I've only read about them. I will say this, that the private prisons in America are not run the way I would think a private business would ever be run. And what I mean by that is they're remunerated by the state that they're in or by the federal government, if they're federal prisons, I'm not even sure there are those, but if they are, there are, they would be remunerated by the federal government, but they're paid based on the amount of inmates that they house at a given time. So the incentive, if there is one would be to actually keep guys in prison, not to rehabilitate them. I'm not suggesting that's what they do. I'm just saying that's the incentive structure. Now in a free market, it's very important that you have the incentive to make a profit. That's what governs the entire system. So if you were to do that with prisons, you would remunerate staff based on results. And those results would be, for instance, stopping inmates from escaping, keeping fights to a minimum, rehabilitating the offender population. That's not what we currently have. So I don't know that there's much of a distinction between the way private prisons currently are structured in America and what in the state prisons that are in America. There is a corporation that runs out of the United Kingdom called Serco. And I have, every time I mention them, I say, I'm not endorsing them. I don't know enough about them, but they do run private prisons in New Zealand, the UK, and in Australia. And they do remunerate staff in the form of bonuses based on reductions in recidivism. And it seems to be successful, although there's critics of them also. Now you've mentioned um, having read among seems quite widely, but including uh, Nathaniel Brandon and his work, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, uh, as having had some impact on you. Did it give you any insights into uh, criminal behavior, how people get involved in uh, making bad decisions and ending up in jail? Uh, yes. The, the Psychology of Self-Esteem is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. His, The idea of facing, I'm going to say demons, he didn't use the, that term, but having to be honest with myself and face things about me that I'd rather not face, I got from him in always being willing to test against the evidence and use reason. I found it to be a, a tremendous book. And it's funny, when my friend Brent first read it, the, the book so upset him, he got mad at me for loaning it to him. And I said, you know, I didn't write the book. I don't know, because it was also making him face things. I've reread the book, I don't know, maybe 30, 50 times. I brought it home with me. I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. As far as criminals, I would say criminals have very poor self-esteem as defined by Nathaniel Brandon. The reason I emphasize that is because there's a movement or a, a school of thought that thinks that by raising the self-esteem of prisoners, you're going to transform them. 
their concept of self-esteem is vastly different from that of Dr. Brandon. So it doesn't work to rehabilitate offenders. What you end up with is criminals who feel better about themselves. That's what the evidence shows. And so I just wanted to distinguish that concept of self-esteem from Dr. Brandon's, which I believe he actually got the the basics from Ayn Rand, the idea that self-esteem is a combination of self-confidence and self-respect. I think she originated that, but I'm not positive. Now, was it primarily almost this self-therapy and this working with this um, fellow inmate and uh, friend and, and later collaborator uh, that helped you to turn your life around? Were there other resources in prison that helped with that? Or No, you... I would say no. The programs in prison go very counter to what evidence suggests works to rehabilitate offenders. The prison environment, the way that rules are enforced is very counter to what would work to rehabilitate offenders. I happen to be very fortunate that I did find a good friend who at the same exact period in life decided to you know, embark on the same journey that I, I decided to embark on. And then I had another friend, Carlos, and he also, uh, you know, loved Ayn Rand's book. So he got involved. So that with those two, I was able to really grow tremendously in a way I would not have been able to had I been relying on the Department of Correction. Interesting. Well, that kind of feeds into another question that we're getting here on Instagram from Stenero9. Incapacitation, punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation. Why do prisons fail at all but the first? And I think that incarceration. Okay. It's incapacitation. Those are the four okay. goals of, of corrections. The reason is largely because their philosophy is ill-informed and they have very little interest in actually implementing it. So obviously, when I say that incapacitation is the only thing they really succeed at, I'm not saying prison's not uncomfortable and it's not a punishment in and of itself. Obviously, being locked away from society is a punishment. I'm saying punishment as effective punishment that's actually going to deter behavior and inspire or incentivize rehabilitation is non-existent. And here's why. If you go into a prison and you want to just go with the flow, you want to gamble, you want to play video games, basketball, argue with your pals, joke around with the correctional officers, whatever, you can live a fairly comfortable life. The rules are for the most part, not enforced unless they're serious. Those that are enforced are very inconsistently enforced. So the, the, the punishment cannot be effective in order for punishment to be effective. It has to be clear why you're being punished. It has to be consistently meted out. And also good behavior has to be rewarded. Whereas in prison, good behavior is often punished, not intentionally. It's not, you know, they don't say we're going to punish you now because you did the right thing. It's just what happens as a part of the way the culture is. Scott on YouTube is asking, how did race relations in prison change during your 25 years there? I, I was talking with you earlier. They didn't. They, they no. really didn't. No. Is, it, is it still pretty much it's kind of a tribal? Not in Connecticut. I've heard of that taking place in other prisons, but I've never sure. experienced it here. So I, I can't I, don't, I can't comment on other places, but in Connecticut, no, that was never an issue. Um, Doug Mayfield is joining us on YouTube, on uh, Zoom here is asking if you are familiar with the work and books of Dr. Stanford Samenow. Dr. Stanton Samenow is 
I would say, along with Ayn Rand, the key to my rehabilitative efforts. He has done more to inspire my thinking on the, the subject of prison than any other author. In 2004, Brent McCall and I read his book, Inside the Criminal Mind, and reading it was like reading a blueprint to the way that we wow. thought. It was He was just dead on with everything he said. And he said that for a criminal to change, he has to make a commitment to total integrity, which was perfectly in line with Ayn Rand's idea of moral perfection. So the two, they complemented each other very well, but he was specifically addressing criminal behavior. He also, we ended up getting his book, well, actually a three-volume set called The Criminal Personality that he had written in the 70s with Samuel Yokelson. And he lays out 52, they laid out 52 criminal thinking errors and again, very, very helpful uh, in, in the rehabilitation process. And I am absolutely honored uh, by Dr. Samenow actually wrote a review for our book, Down the Rabbit Hole, uh, How the Culture of Corrections Encourages Crime. And that might be one of the, the highlight of my whole experience to have one of my heroes writing a review for a book that I co-authored. So yes, I'm very familiar with Dr. Samenow. All right, well, let's maybe put those links in the uh, the comments as well so people can go and check out that work and see if we can get uh, Dr. Samana's review of uh, of Michael's book as well. So let's talk it's about- on Psychology book. Today, just so that I can tell psychology you that Psychology Today, okay, yeah. thank you. Um, so uh, you co-authored, as you mentioned, Down the Rabbit Hole, How Culture, the Culture of Corrections Encourages Crime. When did it come out? How much research could you do in prison? And uh, yeah, what inspired you to write it? How much is based on personal experience? Uh, we published it in late 2017. We did a tremendous amount of research on the book. I've done a tremendous amount of research since we wrote it, which has largely confirmed the, the things that we wrote about. The way it came about is very interesting. We actually were going to write a book called Ayn Rand and the Rehabilitation of Criminals because we felt that we had learned a lot from our experience in prison. And we thought mm -hmm. by applying Ayn Rand's philosophy to basically Dr. Samino's, uh, Samino's ideas, we had discovered something, especially for those inmates who are above average intelligence, who might be looking for something more challenging than what was being offered. What ended up happening was Brent and I had previously designed the program called the Imprisoned Program that we were able to facilitate at McDougal Correctional Institution for four years. And a constant complaint of the inmates taking the program was, but the staff are unethical. But what about the staff? What about the staff? And we used to tell them, and I still think rightly so, the staff behavior has nothing to do with you. You need to worry about yourself. But after a while, I mean, you have to admit it's having an effect. You can admonish people to take responsibility for their lives all you want. The bottom line is we are influenced by other people. And when the inmates see correctional officers using their cell phones that they're not even supposed to have in the building, when correctional officers are sleeping on the job, abusing their power, you know, talking to inmates about how they're having sex with female correctional officers or putting female correctional officers business, you know, out to the inmate population or talking to inmates about gambling, not enforcing the rules. Inmates look at this and say, look, everybody's like me. I just happen to get caught, whereas they don't. And that, that it creates a tremendous obstacle to the rehabilitation process. 
and so Brent ultimately got sick of it and said, we can't write this book about Ayn Rand because rehabilitation can't take place in this environment. We need to write a book on corrections. I didn't want to do it because I was afraid. I knew that the COs would get upset. I knew the inmates would get upset. And I knew we would likely be separated from one another, all of which happened. Okay. But Brent was my friend and he wanted to do it. So I went along with it. And I'm very happy that I did. I knew he was right. I was just scared of the the consequences of, you know, putting it out there. And was it actually in our interest to do so? Well, well, can you give any examples of what happened, what the reaction was, any negative blowback or? Well, Brent was transferred. They, the, the rationale was that Brent was in danger because of what we had written, but they left me in the prison for a year. So if Brent were in danger, it would only stand the reason that I would be as well. Well, you know, we don't, we weren't advocating for prisoner rights. We were telling the truth about the correctional system. And oftentimes it rewards inmates doing bad things. And so the inmates, of course, weren't happy about that. It didn't help that the staff members were telling inmates lies about what was in the book. They're, you know, telling them they were mentioned in a derogatory fashion when in actuality they weren't. Not that none were. We did call two, two inmates in particular, we called sycophants, which Actually, we call them toadies, which is a synonym for, for sycophants, which I stand by because that's what they were. And so, you know, inmates got upset, staff got upset, and you know, there was a lot of retaliation going on until a state senator came to visit me. And after that happened, the staff largely stopped with what they were doing. I would hear comments from time to time, especially once I became a regular guest on a radio show, I would hear little snide remarks, but nothing like what happened when the book was first made known to them. How did that uh, come about that you teamed up with Todd Feinberg and, and started being a guest on that show. It's so unusual. Well, the, the aforementioned state senator, Len Suzio, you know, I was so happy once he came to see me. I said, okay, we're going to start making traction. That was in July. Then in November, he lost his bid for re-election. So now I'm like, oh my God, now we have nothing. But to Senator Len Suzio's credit, he uh, stuck with it. He really cared about the issue. It wasn't just about politics for him. And he was pushing for a variety of people to have me on. And Todd, in the end, was the only one that did. And I thought it was going to be a one-shot deal. I'm going on the Todd Feinberg show. I'm going to get to promote this book. I better make it count because I may not get another shot. And after that first time on the show, Todd invited me to be a regular guest. And I said, yes. And I've been on ever since. That was four years ago. It's amazing. So, I mean, I don't usually, I, as I mentioned, I've had a friend in jail and he certainly would not have been able to be on anybody's radio show. Did, uh, over the course of these 25 years, did your privileges change or improve or it's just a different kind of system. No, you get what you get. I mean, they have rhetoric in their directive about privileges will be earned, but that's not true. It's the default position. You get there, you mm -hmm. get to order a television, radio, Game Boy. Now you're given a tablet and none of that has to be earned. Now they can be taken if you really act up and they decide to enforce the rules, but those privileges aren't, aren't earned. And actually when my level dropped and I was transferred to Osborne, a correctional institution in Summers, now, I thought McDougal was run like a, you know, a, a, a zoo, but Osborne, this was like, I, I can't even believe this place is still open. 
I mean, the building itself is sick. There, there's mold, there's asbestos that they don't remove, there's broken windows, there's mice running around the place. The, the showers, you have to shower with other guys in a closed room that's out of the line of, you know, the, the site of staff, there's broken windows in the shower. And the way the place is configured, there's no glass or plexiglass in the windows. So guys are screaming out of their doors all night and day. They shake the doors when they're at rec, they're making a commotion. It's really a rough place. So as your time, you know, when you get your level drops, instead of going to a place that's going to be more conducive to rehabilitation, it's actually less so. All right, I've got a question here from Instagram. Aside, Katarina Du is asking, aside from failures within the system to rehabilitate inmates, do you think the stigma by society makes it hard for reintegration? I would guess yes. I don't think it makes it impossible. I think if somebody gets out of prison, wants to work, and is willing to do so, I know plenty of guys that have been able to get out and have a job and are, are doing well. My case is a little bit different as far as the stigma goes. I mean, I've been on the radio for four years. A lot of people know who I am. I had a good friend that was willing to let me live with him. So I didn't face a lot of those challenges, but I, I would assume they exist because I know there was a lot of hostility to me being on the radio. So I can't imagine, you know, the broader society, I would guess they have that as well. I've just never personally dealt with difficulties in being able to prosper out here. Anne M on YouTube asks if you got criticism from correctional officers on your book, but I think you addressed that. <laughs> yes, I, I was told by one, I read your book and it sucked. And another and you said, officer, I didn't know you could read. <laughs> <laughs> I was tempted to be say something a lot worse than that, but I decided against it. Another correctional officer wrote a review of the book on Amazon where he said we were guilty of slander and liable. Evidently, he didn't understand that you can't commit slander in writing and the word is liable, not liable. So I, I thought that was kind of entertaining. Funny. And I've been offering since the beginning to debate anybody in corrections that wants to have this discussion with me. Nobody's taking me up on it. One ex-correctional officer or former retired correctional officer had me on his podcast and he, he took issue with me saying that there's no good correctional officers. And I shared an anecdote with him. I said, well, I asked a, a guy who had 20 years on the job said to me, and I had a very good rapport with him. He said, leave, come on. You've got to admit there's good guards. I told him, okay, name five. And he couldn't do it. 20 years on the job, couldn't name five good correctional officers. So now this former CEO that's interviewing me says, well, he was probably terrible, yada, yada. And I said, well, let me be clear. I'm not saying they're bad men. I'm saying they're bad at their job. And here's why. There's specific directives that define what they're supposed to do. So I asked this former correctional officer if he ever swore on the job. He said, yeah, of course, all the time. I said, okay, right there, there's one. You're breaking the directives. You're not doing your job. I said, did you ever turn in a fellow officer for his unethical behavior? He said, well, I've pulled them aside. Uh-uh. The directive says you're duty bound to report unethical behavior to superiors. If you haven't done that, then by definition, you're not doing your job. There's two examples I've just given you where you have not done your job. And that is endemic within the correctional facilities. And so I stick by my statement that I've never met a correctional officer that actually did his job according to the directives. Question for you. So you're saying it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're bad at their jobs. But 
they would think, you know, that maybe the kind of people that are attracted to that job, is it possible that it, you know, uh, attracts people who are looking to to have power over others or who, who maybe, you know, yes. sadistic or lazy? Yes. Yes. And in my experience, it's the last thing you named more than any other. I mean, it's a cushy job. You get to sit around and get paid. Of course, you, you know, you face the, the danger that sometimes comes with the job, but for the most part, you sit around, get paid for it. You've got cushy benefits. When I say, let me just be, I want to say when I'm talking about, when I say they're good people, I'm not saying that they're moral exemplars outside of work. What I'm talking about is they're nice guys. When you talk to them, they're not jerks. They're not tyrants. You know, I could have a discussion with them about sports, politics, or, or whatever. That's what I mean. And I'm just being, I'm, when I use good guys, I'm speaking colloquially. I'm not passing an actual moral judgment and saying they're good people. Got it. All right. Um, well, kind of along those lines of the cushy jobs on Instagram, XL Tom is asking thoughts on prison unions. <laughs> I think the only way to fix the prison system is to smash the unions into a thousand little pieces. They need to go. The, the idea that you have somebody with a job where they basically cannot be fired, regardless of how inept they are, is absolutely absurd, especially when they're getting paid by taxpayers. All right. Uh, and then on YouTube, A. Welch asks, do you have any thoughts on background check reform that would help those who have done their time uh, find work when they get out? Seems like this difficulty contributes to repeat offenses. I actually, in Connecticut, I believe that you can't be asked the question if you were ever in prison any longer. I think they've changed the law and it might actually surprise people that I think it's perfectly legitimate for a private business owner to look into somebody's past. It's his business. He has a right to hire who, whomever he pleases and he has a right to do his research on that person. I don't see any problem with that. Ultimately, it's I put myself in the predicament to where people weren't going to trust me. That's my fault. And it's my job to prove myself. It's not anyone's responsibility to give me a break. I hope they will. And I think it's certainly as you know, people in society, if they want to thrive and have a thriving society ought to be willing to accept reform offenders. So don't, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm just saying that nobody has a duty to do so. Okay. Well, speaking of getting a break, uh, it, if I'm correct, you were recently appointed spokesman for the Libertarian Party of Connecticut. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. How did that come about? And uh, any thoughts on, you know, libertarian, objectivist, old splits, or is it high time to move beyond that? I think it's high time to move beyond that. I'm not saying that an objectivist, first of all, it, it seems like people have this idea of libertarianism, that it's an all-encompassing philosophy. It's not. It's a political viewpoint. Objectivism is an all-encompassing philosophy that ha has a moral code and epistemology, all things that libertarianism does not have. So that, that's the, the the first sort of thing. Secondly, all libertarians are not Murray Rothbard. They're not, or we're not all anarchists. Murray Rothbard was. So what? You know, the Libertarian Party has more than just anarchists in it, and the majority are not anarchists. And it just seems to me, Ayn Rand herself advocating advocated voting for Richard Nixon. She attended when Alan Greenspan was made an economic advisor to Ford. She went to the White House with him. She counseled the voting for Republicans. 
She was friends with Ludwig von Mises, who was a subjectivist to his core, and she was friends with Henry, Henry Hazlitt, who was a utilitarian. To say that I'm somehow betraying my values because I'm aligning myself with a political party that for the most part supports my views is ridiculous. And where else are you going to go? If you think the war on drugs is a mistake, if you think taxation is unethical, if you think the economy should be deregulated, if you think the welfare state needs to be abandoned, if you're against these endless wars that we're into, where else are you going to go? You're going to go to the Republicans. You're going to go to Trump with his tariffs or Biden with everything else. There's just no other place for if someone to go with my views. I'm a, I'm a hardcore capitalist, a disciple of Ayn Rand. And I joined the Libertarian Party because it's the best vehicle for my ideas. Doesn't mean everybody there has to agree with me. I certainly don't agree with everybody there. <laughs> well, as uh, David Kelly likes to say, if we are uh, right, we have nothing to fear. And if we are wrong, we have something to learn. So always good to uh, to be willing to discuss and debate. So uh, I actually wasn't aware that it was so recent that you were uh, let out of prison. Maybe it's because you were actually so productive uh, while you were in, in prison, particularly the last um, few years, that said, you know, you were on radio shows, you were writing, you published a book. Uh, what was it like? What was the first rush of, of freedom like? Any odd experiences adapting to new technologies or pretty much did you have all of that already in the jail? I didn't have the new technologies, but I was aware of them and I was ready to, for the, the challenge. And I'm by no means, you know, tech savvy at this point, but I haven't found it to be overwhelming either. And I'm not mechanically inclined. So I doubt I ever will be extremely tech savvy. I wouldn't have been if I had never went to prison. But yeah, working on myself in prison certainly prepared me to, to be released, it prepared me for the challenge. I've also got an excellent support system. I've got friends. I've got my, I've got a girlfriend. I've got a sister, my friend, Subby, he, uh, Sebastian, Subby Short, he let me lets me live in his house rent free. He's been incredibly supportive. So that's been wonderful. One thing I did love doing when I first got out is I love introducing myself to people and telling them I had spent 25 years in prison. <laughs> it was it, it was very interesting to see the response. The funny thing was a few times I got the response. Oh, are you the guy on the radio? So <laughs> really? It kind of backfired because they already were, were aware of the situation. Uh have you seen the mayor of Kingston? No, what is that? Interesting. Well, I got very into Taylor Sheridan because he's the writer behind Yellowstone, uh, which is a series on uh, streaming that's very, very popular. And now there's this pre Is it any good? I, I love it. Uh, People we'll, keep we'll telling the, me I need to watch it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy his writing in particular. Um, so I decided to go back and watch some of the other things that he uh, has helped to write or to produce. And um, anyway, I mentioned the mayor of Kingston because it is about somebody who is uh, on the outside dealing with the correctional system, dealing with the prison. He's kind of a peacemaker on the outside, on the inside. And uh, anyway, you'll have you'll have a very unique, um, unique perspective on it. So uh, let's talk a little bit about criminal justice reform. Um, your focus is uh, the correctional system. What are some of the other 
priorities uh, and uh, are you tuned into the current criminal justice reform debate and the perspective? To me, a lot of the stuff that they talk about is largely irrelevant. I, I think that the war on so, drugs needs to end. I think if the war on drugs, which very few people are saying needs to end, if you end that, you kill a lot of the problems that we have. A lot of the people that are in jail for simple drug possession wouldn't be there. People that have to steal in order to support their habit. If drugs are legal, the price plummets. You no longer have to steal to support the habit. It's still not a good habit to have, just like alcoholism is not a, a good habit. But very few alcoholics are sticking up liquor or sticking up banks in order to pay for their their liquor habit. It's cheap, so they can just go buy it. So I think that's the key. If I were to say anything other than prison reform, is you've got to stop this insane war on drugs. And I got to tell you, I heard Ted Cruz today. And he was going after the uh, head of the Department of Homeland Security. And I frequently hear conservatives make this argument that by having open immigration, you're letting fentanyl and drugs into the country, you're killing people. They don't seem to grasp that. No, what's killing people are the fact that there's a war on drugs that they support that leads to people not knowing what's in the drugs that they're using because the who knows who's cutting them and who's what, the, you know, what the... Uh, potency of the drug is and people overdose if drugs are legal you don't have that problem so I, it's just it's a bit rich for the conservatives because they hate immigration to try to you know use that the overdoses as a reason to further put restrictions on immigration and then they have the nerve to call themselves the party of small government which you know whatever it's aggravating to me that's all i'm sorry all right uh doug mayfield uh, has ordered your book michael awesome Great. Uh, he just ordered it, hasn't read it yet, but he's going to get it. And I want to encourage others in, in our audience to do that. And also, Michael, if you're interested in having it converted to Audible, uh, an audio format, we, we have a cheat sheet on how to do that. Oh, I'd um, love to see that because I don't know how to sure. do it. Yep, absolutely. We can help. Uh, that was when I was recruited to run the Atlas Society um, and there was a lot to do. And, I, and they had published a lot of books and there were still... Uh, well, there probably wasn't any Ayn Rand book I hadn't read, but I hadn't read it for a while. So I was like, I just went on an audible tear and I made sure that first priority is we got all of our, our books at, at Atlas Society on Audible. So we've got it into a groove and we're going to share the blueprint with you. But um, getting back to Douglas, he has a little bit of a long question here, but he says, uh, seems to him that the four purposes of the prison system far away the most important is to protect the public from people who are dangerous how does one approach improving rehabilitation while not placing the public in danger i actually agree 100 percent with him that that is the point and that's what i've been trying trying to convey to people is that 95 percent of people that are in prison are getting out it's in society's interest to rehabilitate people there's never going to be a perfect thing. No, you're never going to rehabilitate everybody that's in prison. Some people just simply aren't interested and there's nothing you're going to do to make them interested. But there is an abundance of evidence for what works to rehabilitate offenders. There are assessment devices or, that have been shown to be fairly accurate. They have to be implemented and they have to be used correctly. I mean, I suggest or I recommend to people that are watching, look up criminogenic needs, look up risk need responsivity model of corrections, look up core correctional practices, look up the level of service inventory assessment tool. If you if you look into these things, you will find out that they are cost effective and they're evidence-based and 
absolutely should be implemented. I don't think that in the way that prisons are currently constructed, any of those things could be implemented adequately, mostly because of the unions. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but that's largely it. All right. Wyatt516 on YouTube asks, did you have any trans prisoners in the population? If so, did everybody get along reasonably well? So there's, yes. you know, a con controversy now um, in California, uh, a, a man, male criminal who gets convicted says, I'm just changed my mind. I'm a woman. He can be uh, housed in female prison. Uh, well, in, in Connecticut, yes, there were trans people in the prisons. I mean, they're, you know, they're a minority, certainly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I've seen more than a handful over the years. And for the most part, they get along. I, I mean, they, they weren't really in my circle, but, you know, every so like, people make so that women, biological women who are trans men. So no, 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 no. They're not in men's prisons. No, no. Okay. Biological men who want to be women are in the, the men's prisons. Right. Which is where they should be and not in women's prisons, in yes. my opinion. And mine too. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, Scott is, I guess, kind of, I think, keying off of what you had asked earlier, um, or you were talking about earlier in terms of the drug, the war on drugs and, and needing to add that as the biggest thing that we can do to uh, to improve um, incarceration. He's asking is, are, are that many people in jail for simple possession anymore? Well, or is it not that it's that drugs are expensive and people are, you know, because it's it's not regulated and it's it's not a free market people are um well you, you have the, a lot of things you have people that are in jail for possession people that are in jail for possession with intent to sell people that are in jail for committing crimes in order to support their habit and people that are in jail for violent acts in drug wars and you know gang wars over drug territory and whatnot so you've got you know, a variety of things. I don't know the exact numbers of just possession, but I do know that the war on drugs fuels a large portion of our incarceration that we have in this country. What do you see as some of the better approaches for reducing recidivism? I think that a cognitive behavioral therapy addressed to the criminogenic needs that I talked about earlier would be most effective. That's what the evidence shows. I mean, it, they've done meta-analysis after meta-analysis that demonstrates that those are the programs that actually reduce recidivism if they're implemented correctly. Because you could have the perfect philosophy behind a program, but if the person running it doesn't implement it as designed, then you know you, you get nothing. So that's what does it. I mean, you you implementation implementation of core correctional practices, effective modeling by staff members, consistent rule enforcement, rewarding good behavior. All these things are necessary for if you're really going to make a dent in recidivism. And like I said, the evidence is that these things work. Let's talk about your podcast. Okay, the rational egoist. Uh, how did it get started? What's the focus? Where do we find it? And how can we help? Okay. Uh, 
my goal coming out of prison has been to become a talk host. That's what I want to do with my life. I discovered that in prison from being on with Todd Feinberg. And it's something I think I'm good at and I have a passion for it. I love talking. I love discussing, debating ideas. And so that was my plan was to get out of prison and eventually, you know, start a podcast, maybe get a job at a radio station. And my friend bought me this microphone. It, you know, it hooks up to the computer here. It's nice. And I, I just was looking for something and I ended up meeting a woman from Australia who ha has some knowledge about how to get podcasts up and running and, you know, uploaded to wherever they need to be. I still really don't know, but in, in she and I teamed up and ever since then she came up with the idea for the title, which I thought was great. And so I've been making the episodes and to my utter disbelief, I've been reaching out to people and just saying, Hey, you want to come on? And people that I've been reading about for years while I was in prison are like, yeah, I'll come on the show. And it's like, wow, what, like, what a moment for me. Like I, I, my first interview was with David Friedman. His father yeah. is the first person that ever got me interested in economics. So to be able to interview him was a, a great experience, even though I disagree with him, you know, about a lot, he's still a very bright guy and, you know, has a long history of promoting freedom. I know there's going to be people out there that say, well, no, anarchy is not freedom, whatever. I'm not going to quibble about that. But nonetheless, it, it was great. And I've had on uh, Robert Trzinski from the Atlas Society, Michael Munger, another libertarian, uh, Murray Sabrin. So it's been just an absolutely wonderful experience. Uh, Jim Valiant, who's not from the Atlas Society, but is an objectivist. He was a, a great guest that I had. And I'm really enjoying myself. I think we're putting out very good episodes and will continue to do so. Well, I'm really excited for it. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, whatever whatever we can do to, to help. So uh, another question here, Gary Spinova, Twitter. Thoughts on other third party political groups? Have you heard of the American Capitalist Party? I have not heard of them. I I've actually got involved with the Libertarian Party. Todd Feinberg and I were going to start a party on our own. We were, you know, I, he's fed up with the Republican Party. I've not favored the Republican Party for ever since they got Trump as their their guy. And somebody actually said, you know, you already have a party in the state that supports most of your views. So we looked into it. We contacted them and, uh, you know, we proposed that they make me their speaker and they they agreed to it. So that's how I got involved in them. But no, I've never heard of the American Capitalist Party, but there's a you know, there's a lot of different parties out there. I think that for my ideas, the Libertarian Party is the, the best and the most viable. And so that's why I, I went that route. Yeah. So um, the American Capitalist Party is something that Mark Pellegrino uh, has put together. And he's been he's an objectivist and an actor. And he was a guest on this show. And I bet with a little nudge, we could get him to come on your show. So um, so we will we'll do that. So you came out of prison wanting to be a talk show host. Uh, yes. What else is on your bucket list? I have a goal where I want to bring together and I know how hard it is. I'm not, you know, I'm not paying glossy in here. I'm just saying that I want to bring together people that favor individual liberty. It seems to me, and I've been noticing this on Facebook more than anywhere else, the amount of fighting between people who agree on 95% of the things, but are arguing about stuff like 
the libertarians are arguing with objectivists and it's bitter over whether or not self-ownership comes first or the right to life comes first. Meanwhile, they agree on the conclusion that you have a right to your life and the, the, the purpose of government is to protect it. And it just seems to me if we've got people that agree on that, that agree that the right to life is paramount and the only purpose of government is to protect life, liberties, and properties, all the rest, I mean, it, fine, argue about it, debate it, but vitriol, vitriolic and, oh, it's horrible. Nasty, right? And I, yeah. And I just think that if if we ever have a chance of having a free society, we need to come together and put aside those disagreements. So that's well, part of my goal. Amen to that. You know, I uh, did not spend, I spent most of my career in the private sector, some of my career at the White House. So I've only been at this gig seven years and two weeks. Um, and uh, it's been interesting. You know, I thought I would be attacked and vilified by socialists, which I have, um, or those on the left, which I have. But the most like bitter, hysterical criticism that I've gotten, it's not even from libertarians. It's been from fellow objectivists. And I'm like, guys, I think we kind of agree on a lot. So I call it the narcissism of um, of small differences, and so I'm I'm all for seeing what can be done to, as I like to say, you can't be objective if you don't have some perspective. And I think a bit of fresh perspective, which is certainly what you can bring, uh, given that you're you know what what you've been up to for the past twenty five years. Okay, a couple other questions, and then I'm going to hand the floor over to you, Michael. Uh, for anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't gotten to. Um, Amanda Tapper on Facebook is asking, do you think ideological schisms are real or hyped up by media? I don't even know how much the media in general is aware of the ideological schisms within the liberty movement. Um, I previously only read about them in liberty-based books since I've been on Facebook, which has only been a two months now, I think, or a month and a half, two months, I've seen this overwhelmingly where people just are vicious to one another over slight disagreements. And it just seems like you, you were never going to get anything accomplished that way. We have to come together. But I do think I think they're real. And it's okay to have differences with people. That doesn't mean I have to hate you because you have a difference of opinion or beer, even if it's not an opinion question. You, I could be wrong. You could be wrong. But we don't have to kill each other over it. I think our time's far better spent fighting against people that are for an all-powerful state or even the state as it currently is constructed. Like I said, Republicans are out there and they're, you know, so much against immigration. Don't let Im immigrants into the country or, you know, the left wants to tax everybody to death. To me, those are the things to fight about. Those are the, the, the issues to argue about, not over slight ideological differences that have no policy implications. The policy, I'm not saying that ideology doesn't matter, but for purposes of working together, I think the policies are what should be paramount. Tim Whittle on Facebook wants to know, does the death penalty have a place or should it be outlawed nationally? I am not a proponent of the death penalty, and it's not because I think it's an injustice to execute somebody who's taken a life. I think, one, there's a very real risk that you execute an innocent person, and that would be absolutely awful to have happen. 
But more fundamentally is as somebody who doesn't trust government, I just think that that is too much power to hand over to any government, the, the power to so deliberately take somebody's life. I'm just not willing to do it. I, I just know. I, I don't think that there should be the death penalty. I don't think people are evil for believing in it. It's not something I'm very passionate about. I just, if I have to vote on it, I would vote no. So uh, we've got just a couple of other minutes here. Um, sounds like you're on Facebook, so people yes. can find you there. Where else should be people be following I'm on, you? I'm on TikTok and Instagram. I, I put out videos every night. I missed last night because I was sick, but I made sure to make up for it this morning. Uh, Michael Leibowitz on uh, TikTok and Instagram. It's Michael Leibowitz, but my little nickname is The Rational Egoist. Facebook, Michael Leibowitz, Twitter. If you look up Michael Leibowitz, you'll get me too. I'd really like the followers. Follow me, you know, give me your comments, ask your questions. Let's debate if we have to, but if we're working toward the same goals, let's work together and try to get a free society. I love it. All right, Michael. Well, we really appreciate you. Uh, appreciate what you're doing and um, wishing you all the best of, of luck and we'll be we'll be trying to help you along the way so thank you very much um, thank you very much absolutely i want to also thank everyone who asked all of these great questions uh very informed questions uh if you enjoyed this video or any of the other materials or content that we put out at the atlas society please consider making a tax deductible donation atlassociety.org. And then next week, um, hope you will come back and join us. I'm going to be interviewing Gabrielle Bauer. She is going to be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks. We're going to talk about her book, Blindsight is 2020, Reflections on COVID Policies from Dissident Scientists, Philosophers, Artists, and more. She should have included you, Michael, in that book. We'll maybe look for the reprint. So thanks, everyone. <laughs> we'll see you next week.